0: Rise for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. Hear now God's Word. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. Having learned Christ and having moved from your former conduct, the Apostle will now turn to expand upon this comparison between the old man and the new man. And this is a critical Issue and a critical concept for us to understand. It really, I think, is at the root of many of our problems when we don't grasp this and understand just what it is that has been done for us and to us. There is an initial act of God whereby when we, as, as Paul says earlier in Ephesians 2, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that He made us alive together with Christ. Now, we call this in theology justification. The Westminster Shorter Catechism answers the question, what is justification? And says that justification is an act of God. It is an act of God, and it's an act of His free grace, whereby He pardons all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So you got that justification, our being made right with God, This this thing that happens that puts us in a relationship with Him, a living relationship, is God's work in raising the dead, in raising us, and putting us in a right relationship to Him. This is a one-time act of God. It is our spiritual resurrection. The old man... The old dead man, the old man in Adam, is replaced by a new man, a brand new man, a new man in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17-19, through 19, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled himself to uh, Reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed us to the word of reconciliation. Like birth, this is the beginning of a new life that is to be lived out. Life involves a process of growth. And we call this sanctification. Again, Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is sanctification? Sanctification is not an act. Sanctification is, a, is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and to live unto righteousness. So there are two aspects of this. There's the initial act, which is the act of God, that puts us in right standing, that takes us out of the grave and and gives us life. And now that we're living, we need to live. There's a certain fruit of that life that should then begin to be born. And so Paul is about to lay out how these contrasts between the old and the new should look in the life of the believer as he matures. On the one hand, this does involve taking off the old man. Certain things must no longer be a part of our lives. Those dirty clothes have to be taken off. We don't just brush them off, or you know, hose them off, or uh, just try to freshen them up while we keep them on. They're 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 really awful. I know in working in rescue missions before. Uh, the one that I worked with some in Texarkana, um, that people would come in sometimes off the streets and had not changed clothes for quite some time and and those clothes could be pretty pretty rank and rather than uh, just take them off and wash them and put them back on they would they would insist as part of their policy you have to dispose of those, and we will give you some new clothes. We'll give you fresh clothes and that's kind of the image we have here that we uh, have fouled ourselves in such, to such a degree that it's not a matter of having a clean-up job done. Those just need to be put away forever. And so these dirty clothes have to be removed, and then he washes us, and then the second part of this work is that we're going to put on some new clothes, some clean clothes. So the old is replaced with the new. Old habits replaced by new habits. Sin replaced by Righteousness. The old nature is replaced by a new nature or a second nature. Now, this is not about moralism. It's not about self-reform, not just deciding, okay, I need to clean up my act and be a better person. When the natural man tries to reform, to clean up his own act, he inevitably fails. In fact, things often go from bad to worse. Jesus describes this in Luke 11. When he says, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finding none. And he says, I will return to to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes uh, with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state is worse than the first. And it's an old story people trying to, to, to fix themselves, but they're not able to. Something from the outside has to happen. The Holy Spirit must move into your house if there is to be real and lasting change. When Paul says we put off the old man, he uses the aorist tense in the Greek, which means that it is a once-for-all action. He also puts on the new man, uh, so he also puts on the new man once for He takes off the old man once for all, and he puts on the new man once for all. Nevertheless, there is a renewal of the mind, he says, that is continuous and is ongoing. The old man is the first Adam whereby we received our corrupt nature. The new man is the second Adam. That is Christ, whereby we received a new nature. We receive new power. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, not I, but Christ who lives in me. All this kind of language were given in the Bible about how this is not just me, but Christ Himself, the work of God in me, empowering me, enabling me, informing me, doing everything that needs to happen. For me to be transformed by the renewing of my mind, by a change of heart, by a new orientation, new perspectives, new understanding, enlightened. All kinds of language is used to describe what God has done and what He is continuing to do. He who began a good work in me will complete it. And so the old man is put off. Adam, and the new man. In other words, we are new men, and what Paul's saying is if you're a new man, then live like it. Let me illustrate this. After the slaves were emancipated in America, they were no longer slaves. They were free. Nevertheless, many who had been slaves all their lives kept on living as though they were slaves. No doubt there were many who were more than willing to help foster this false notion. But legally and positionally, they were actually free men. But out of habit and out of custom, they kept on living like slaves. He needed to learn how to stop living like a slave and how to start living like a free man, and that could take time. There are a lot of external forces, a lot of things that make that difficult. And that's true in the life of a new believer. There are all kinds of old friends and old habits and family and culture and all kinds of things that make it easy for us to stay in that way of life, especially when we haven't fully realized what's been done for us. Another way we might illustrate this is sometimes we might say to an older child a teenager or an adult stop acting like a baby well they're not babies but sometimes we act like babies okay we're not old men but sometimes we act like we are as believers and paul's saying stop that you're not a baby anymore you're not a slave anymore and so Paul could say as he did in Galatians 2:20, I've been crucified with Christ. I died. The old man died. Nevertheless, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See what all all this has been done for me, to me, it has changed me. Everything's new. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time this morning talking about this phrase, corrupt according to the deceitful lust. This is kind of a two-part sermon today. We're talking about taking off the old. Next time, we'll talk about putting on the new. But I want to start by confessing to you that as I thought through these things, I found myself personally under great conviction That I have grown slack in my own sanctification, sometimes growing weary in well-doing, coasting, if you will, hitting a plateau, being satisfied. I've come pretty far, but now I can relax. I don't have to be diligent and earnest about this any longer. It is so easy for us to make progress and then to hit that plateau and to coast and to be satisfied. But the first thing Paul tells us is that the old man is growing corrupt. He's decaying. He's dying. And this is why he has to be put off. And there's always this urge, uh, this, this force that's there. Of he wants to come back into the picture. But like Lazarus, he already stinks. It's, he's over and done with. There's no future for the old man. And the second point that Paul makes is that this corruption is being driven by deceitful lust. The word lust simply means desire. But in this case, it is deceitful desire. Desires that mislead, desires that lie. You have those. Now, there are, of course, legitimate desires. In fact, in the Bible, that actually uses the word lust sometimes in this positive way. We're not used to hearing it that way. But two examples: uh, Luke 22:15 uses the same Greek word. Uh, this is the same word that Jesus used when he said to his apostles, "With fervent, fervent desire." There's the word. You could say, "With fervent, l- fervent lust." I have, des- I have lusted to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. It just means passionate desire, a strong desire. And it could be good desire, it could be bad desire. A passage I particularly like is it's translated in the King James in Deuteronomy 14.26 as God is telling His people to prepare for a two-week-long feast. He says, And thou shalt bestow that money... For whatsoever thy soul lusteth after, for oxen, for sheep, for wine, or strong drink, or for whatsoever thy soul desireth, and thou shalt eat there before the Lord thy God, and thou shalt rejoice, thou and thine household. So desire can be good, and it, or it can be bad. Certain natural desires, like hunger, or thirst, or sex, or sleep, are not wrong in themselves. In fact, God created them all and said they're good, and he gave them to man for enjoyment as well as for his preservation. But sin has taken these good desires and turned them into false gods which drive and rule us. They are killing or corrupting us. And thus Paul describes the life of the unbeliever as who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness. In other words, there's this sensual life, this life of just seeking pleasure. That becomes the goal. That becomes the God itself. And these controlling lusts then are responsible for all of our troubles... All of our troubles as individuals, all of the troubles in our marriages and in our families, in groups, in nations, this explains everything. And this leads us to a third point that is found in the word deceitful. See, it's a lie that manipulates lust, which in turn control man and lead him to death. So Paul is like a person who might be explaining a magic trick, which is a form of deception, as playful as it might be. How did they do that? That's amazing. And so when a person sees an illusionist doing something remarkable, that is often the response. We're intrigued, and we want to know, how did they do it? But if someone explains in detail how the trick is accomplished, where all the wires are, It will no longer be possible for him not to see the deception. Oh, man, that kind of ruined the trick. Now I know how it's done. Well, you see, this new enlightened man, that would be you, should no longer be deceived. Because the Bible has told us about the trick. It's pulled the curtain back. It's shown us what's really going on. Remember the devil is a liar and the father of lies. It was his lie that got us into all this trouble in the first place. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 11:3, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from that simplicity which is Christ. And John paints the contrast this way in 1 John 5: 19 through 20, we know that the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one, and we know that the Son of God has come and given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God in the eternal life. So there's two things. The whole world's under the influence, the sway, the deception of the evil one, but Jesus came to give us understanding so we could see that, to shed light on that, so that we have understanding, to see what's going on in the world. Demons and fallen men and women alike operate in the realm of deceit. I'm just thinking about the painted and perfumed harlot is another picture in the Bible that the Bible gives us of the power and result of deception. Proverbs 7 21 through 23, with her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. Immediately, he went in after her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a fool to the correction of the stocks, till an arrow struck his liver. As a bird hastens to the snare, he did not know that it would cost him his life. Sin itself deceives. Hebrews 3.13, "...but exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened..." Now, he's talking to Christians here. "...lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin." You've got some sins in your life, perhaps, that you've gotten awfully comfortable with, that you've justified or excused for any number of reasons... And if you as a Christian have become hardened and indifferent and you're not moved by the Word of God, you're not moved by the things of God, then it is because of the deceitfulness of sin. And then there is that most insidious deception of all, and that is self-deception. Our hearts are so twisted that we can lie to ourselves and believe our own lie. How do you do that? I know how to lie to you, perhaps, and trick you. But how do I lie to myself and then believe my own lie? I'm that corrupt in my old man. That's why he has to be put away. He has to be told, you have no place anymore. Dr. Lloyd-Jones summarized, summarizes saying this, Sin always comes with a smile. It is most ingratiating. It always pays us compliments. We are very wonderful. If we'll only listen. It plays on our pride in some shape or form, our appearance, our good looks, our nature, something about us. Wonderful. And so it deceives us by flattering us. Sin does that in every realm. It always comes in an attractive form. And we are fools enough to look on the surface and to judge by outward appearance and not by the reality itself. I recently ran across a song by Amos Lee, and the lyrics fit well with what Paul is warning about. The song is about a young Hollywood starlet, but really it could be about any one of us as well. The title of the song, Soul Suckers. He said, Did you believe it when they told you they discovered you? and that everything is free as long as you do what they tell you to? you think it's true? But nothing could be further from the truth, my love. Did you even listen when they told you to change your name, and that nobody wants honesty when looking at a perfect frame? Play the game. Nothing could be further from the truth, my love, and nothing is more powerful than beauty in a wicked world. Play it, girl. Does it make you feel good when they tell you what you want to hear? After they suck all your soul, well, that's when they'll disappear. Disappear. They disappear forever. Like a prince in your little fairy tale. And you will find one day you put your soul on sale. Sin loves to bypass thought. It appeals to your desire, to your feeling, to your appetite. You don't need time to think about this. You're being subtly worked. You're a man of the moment. You can't see past right now. You sell everything like the prodigal son. Paul says that the deceitfulness of lust will leave you where it left the prodigal. Wallowing the pigs. The Bible enables us, though, to think ahead. The Bible enables us to see further down the road. It warns us. It pulls the curtain back. It exposes the old man. Another way sin lies to us and deceives us is that it tells us that the thing we want is quite natural. It's just human. After all, you've been made like this. You can't help it. And if you deny yourself this thing, then you're repressing yourself. You are being stifled in some way. As one professing Christian man told me a little over 20 years ago with regard to the woman that he was committing adultery with, quote, I believe it's God's will. Why else would God have put this love in my heart for her? By the way, within a year after divorcing his wife of 20 years and abandoning his two daughters, he took his own life. The problem with the old man is he loves to express himself. There's a reason he's called the natural man and the carnal man. Sin likes to give up only give us only part of the whole story while it conceals certain other facts. The half truth is the most dangerous lie and the most effective deception. Let's not bring up the law of God, even though that is inscribed in every heart. You can have a little. You can test the waters. You you are strong. You can play near the edge and be just fine. Long before a habit becomes a habit, it was a flirt. First Corinthians 10, 1 through 12. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. He's describing the people of God here. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. What went wrong? Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they so lusted. And do not become idolaters as some of them were, as is written, The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them, As examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages has come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No one plans to fall. And finally, the deceitfulness of lust promises satisfaction right now. But sin never satisfies, it never has, it never will. God designed it that way. The wages of sin is death. Separation. Temporary and permanent. Sin against somebody and see what happens to your relationship. It gets separated, doesn't it? Steal something from someone and see if you can still be their close friend and have a good relationship. Curse them. See how that goes. See, that's just true in human relationships. But when we sin against God, we cut ourselves off from Him. Sin corrupts. Sin kills in every direction, and it lies about it. Lust never gives us anything at all. It only takes away deceitful lust. There were plenty of people that had helped empty the pockets of the prodigal son. Can you, I got the picture. He goes off. He's got all this wealth that he's gotten in a lump sum. Don't you figure he was everybody's best friend for a while? He was buying drinks for the house. Everybody wanted to hang out with him. He was cool, he dressed cool. Lots of fair weather friends. He left home. He had been blessed. Like a lot of you have been blessed. But he soon left home and he became the companion of fools. No pleasure was to be denied. But sin robs every one of us. It exhausts us mentally, emotionally, physically, morally, and in every other way. And in the end, it leaves us wasted, devastated, and I think that's part of the reason why war, which is the ultimate uh, conflict, uh, and if you watched, I've been watching the Vietnam uh, documentary by Ken Burns that's just come out and reminded of how horrible war is. Um, in fact, as I've thought about this, uh, I think war often leaves in its wake a, an avalanche of guilt and depression, For a lifetime. Again, as I watched that documentary, one old veteran said that he had done many bad things while he was there. But the one thing he remembered the most was the time that he and some of his buddies violated a young girl. And he said, that moment has haunted me all my life. You and I remember sins that we've committed. And sin is entirely destructive for us all. As Lloyd-Jones says, it takes away and robs us of character, of chastity, purity, honesty, morality, uprightness, delicacy, balance, sensitivity, And everything that is most noble in man. It is surprising, is it surprising that the Apostle says, Put off concerning the former conversation or way of life, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts." Avoid sin, I say, as the very plague. Get as far away from it as you can. Do all you can to destroy it and to mortify it. The New Testament is full of such teaching. Now, in some ways I hate to end here. The good news is that God promises to forgive our sins. And while there are many sins I have a hard time forgetting, He doesn't. He says, I'll remember your sins no more. I'll cast them as far as the east is from the west. More than that, he does a transforming work in us to make us new men, resurrected men and women. And So we have some putting off to do, ongoing putting off. There's the one time putting off, but then there's that temptation to... We're not slaves, but we go back and start acting like we're slaves. Or we're not babies, but we go back and act like babies. And Paul says, stop it. Realize who you are in Christ. Own it and stop it. It's killing you. It's killing your family. It's hurting you every day. Be earnest about this. And so we've got some putting off to do and next time. Lord willing, we will talk about this essential putting on that makes all the difference. That brings all the glory and all the joy and all the hope and all the expectation that we need to keep moving forward. Let's pray. Father, we are blessed beyond all measure that you did not leave us to ourselves, but called us and made us to be new men in Christ. You set us free from our bondage to sin. Help us to now live like free men. And as new men, help us to grow and mature and live lives of joy as we walk with You in the light of Your Word. Fill us with Your Spirit. Enable us to do all things in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. There's a parallel passage from our text today found in Colossians chapter 3. Verses 1 through 11. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now, but now you yourselves are to put off all of these Anger. Are you angry? Wrath? Malice? Blasphemy or evil speaking? Filthy language out of your mouth? Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds? And have put on the new man who is renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, uncir- barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. You have often heard me say that perspective is critical. It always determines how we react and how we respond to hard situations and to temptation and to the unknown. It's very easy for us to hear the Bible and let it become some kind of a book of quaint quotations rather than the absolute truth that it claims to be. But we are in Christ. We have put off the old man and we have put on the new man. We are new, and so all things have become new. I look at every situation, every circumstance, everything. Sickness, health, wealth, poverty, trials, good days, bad days, cloudy days, rainy days. We look at all of them in a new way. We see everything different now. The table is the place where we come to get everything back in its right perspective. It's where we come to reorder our priorities. It's where we come to start a new week. And so here we are on Resurrection Day, another opportunity for a fresh start. Father, as many of us are about to join with others across this land to stand in public and give testimony to the beauty of life and the horrors of death, Grant us your peace, and may the message proclaimed be received, and may your gospel do its work in the hearts of those in need. May your spirit bring conviction of sin, and grant repentance from the heart. May minds be changed, and may lives be changed. Eternal God, you have revealed yourself as the Father of all life and grace. We praise you for the fatherly care which you extend to all creation, and especially to us made in your image and likeness. Father, extend your hand of protection to those threatened by abortion and save them from its destructive power. Give your strength to all fathers and mothers that they may never give in to the fears that may tempt them to facilitate such things. Bless our families and bless our land that we may have the joy of welcoming and nurturing the life of which you are the source and the eternal Father. We pray that you would drive all the wicked away from the innocent children and from the killing centers where their destruction is planned. Overcome evil with good in the hearts of those who reject your truth and who have believed the lies of the evil one who would say that good is evil and evil is good. Rebuke the enemy for the sake of innocent children and for your sake, O Lord. Our Father, who is the beginning and the end, hear our prayers as we cry out to you, to end this merciless shedding of innocent blood in our nation and throughout the world. O Lord, through death you have conquered death, and through your life we experience eternal and everlasting life. Cause life to spring forth in the hearts of all people and bring forth a love and respect for life that will dominate our culture. May your kingdom and church apprehend and overtake the culture of death that has prevailed through deceit and selfishness. And may the seed of the woman crush the head of the serpent through Jesus Christ our Lord. Bless now our meal and our fellowship. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Amen. Amen.